Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Wes Hazard. I woke up outside of the Archdiocese of Boston. Like, yeah, I woke up on the Bishop's Lawn, which is like, whoa, weird, also helpful, because I knew exactly where I was, all right? That and more, but before that, I just want to say, I want to give a big shout out to some of our new Patreon members, and they are George Suarez, Cordell Hollingsworth, Genevieve True, and Sharon Porter. We always give a shout out if someone is donating $25 or more per month. Thank you so much to you guys. It means so, 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 so very much to us that our fans are helping us out right now. As you guys know, we are cutting corners a little bit, trimming our expenses, cutting back a little bit on what we can do. We're, we're in survival mode right now, but we're doing great, I think, as far as the production of the show goes. This is a phenomenal episode you're about to hear today, if I do say so myself. So support right now from our fans is more essential than ever before. And fortunately, there is so much that we have to offer to our fans at patreon.com slash risk. So many bonus stories, so many interviews with storytellers and with staff members, so many personal check-ins from me. There's a lot to be gained by becoming a patron of ours over there. Or if you're interested in helping us out with a one-time donation, you can go to paypal.me slash risk show and help us out that way. We have a big staff that help us do various things here, and we're asking the staff to take cuts in pay. We love and are so grateful for our staff. We have such a wonderful staff, as you can hear if you go, for example, onto our Patreon to hear all the interviews with the staff. Or just listen to episodes like this one, where, where we feature two of the members of the staff. But the point is, if you can support us, please, please do. We are dead set determined to keep going, to keep putting out this fantastic content. We see that some fans, for example, are upping the amount that they're giving over at Patreon. They've, they've gone in and switched the amount higher. Uh, we deeply appreciate that too. So folks, help keep risk running at paypal.me slash risk show or at patreon.com slash risk. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Now here's the show. Whoa, whoa, whoa. 
Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Ennio Morricone behind me now, who passed away last week. Great film composer. When I was seven years old, my brothers were very sadistic, my two older brothers, in a lot of ways, and they were always trying to scare me. And one night when I was seven years old, I remember it was 11 p.m., so it was way past my bedtime, or maybe earlier than that, but it seemed really, really late at night. And they wanted to watch a movie called The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, and I was afraid. I was like, oh no, that sounds scary. You know, that sounds like they're going to scare me with this movie. So we started watching the movie and the theme song started at the very beginning. And I was like, yeah, I'm out of here. I'm out of (laughs) here. This seems too scary. So it wasn't until I was uh, maybe a sophomore in high school, old enough to go down to the art movie house downtown that I started seeing the Sergio Leone spaghetti westerns uh, once upon a time in the west also with music by Ennio Morricone really really struck me to see Henry Fonda play such an evil guy Henry Fonda who you normally think of as the good guy was profound it, it, it was like looking at the dark side of America which you know <laughs> it's there I'll tell you, you you can't see what's going on right now, but this is the most surreal opening hosting segment I've done in a long time because I'm laying in bed. (laughs) My neighbors decided to play some music and eat outdoors tonight, and so I was like, great, I don't want to ruin it. I don't want to be a killjoy. People need to, like have their relaxation time right now. So I brought all the podcasting equipment into the bedroom and now they've turned the music off and everything outside. So anyway, here I am talking to you from my boudoir. Um, I'm fully clothed just to let you know. We are calling this week's episode Earthquakes. These are three stories about ground shifting underneath your feet sort of situations in life that opened up new opportunities and new challenges for all three storytellers. In a little bit, we're going to hear from yours truly. But before that, we're going to hear a story from a beloved member of our team. Wes Hazard is a teacher of ours at thestorystudio.org. He is also one of the co-hosts of Stories from the Stage, which you can find on your local PBS affiliate. He is also a three-time Jeopardy winner, which he told a story about on Risk in the past. Speaking of the past, I'm so grateful now that we spent so many years recording so many more stories than we could put on the podcast in a timely manner. Now we've got these archives, you know, of all these stories that were told at live shows that have yet to run on the show, which is great because we can hear what it sounded like, you know, with brand new stories, but that are recorded in front of a live audience in a theater. This is back in 2017 that Wes shared this at a show in Burlington, Vermont, but it seems rather timely right now. Here is Wes Hazard with a story we call origin story hello how you guys doing doing good yeah so I'm gonna tell you a story Uh, this occurred back in 2004 And that summer, I was at Boston College, BC, and one morning, one Sunday morning in July, I woke up outside, which is unusual for me. Like, I'm not known for my nature enthusiasm. I don't go camping. Uh, It was very weird. But, like, I woke up under, like, a blue sky and green grass, and it was, like, one of those, like, start, like, what the fuck? Like, you know, and, like, so I, like... (laughs) 
there was like a squirrel like 10 feet away from me and I'm like, just, what's going on right now? I don't remember anything. I don't know how I got there at all. Uh, luckily, uh, my stuff is near me. So my glasses are only a couple feet away from my body. I have my phone and my wallet and you know, that's cool. And I just do a quick mental check. Like I haven't been beaten up. I don't feel like I've been drugged or you know, assaulted in any way. So like, all right, that's nice. Uh, now where am I? I found out that very quickly, I had woken up in a rather iconic spot. I was on the lawn of the Archdiocese of Boston. Like, yeah, I woke up on the Bishop's Lawn, which is like, whoa, weird, also helpful, because I knew exactly where I was, all right? <laughs> Only about less than a mile uh, from the summer campus housing where I had been staying in, so I'm like, all right, I just start walking back. I uh, grab a hot chocolate at a convenience store, and I'm like trying to like find the thread. Like, how did I get from the house party that I'd been in the night before to here? I have no idea, but I'm pretty sure that I'm gonna have to apologize to some people, all right? Like, I, that's in my future, I feel that. I make it back to my dorm room, and the dude that I'm bunking with, uh, you know, he's up, and as soon as I walk in, he's like, oh my God, you're here, thank God, I'm gonna call the cops. And I was just like, whatever, like, you know, because I was a little bit preoccupied, like, I'm like, do whatever you're gonna do, man, because although I was fortunate uh, in that I didn't have, like, a raging, like, headache or stomachache, I was very exhausted, and I was preoccupied because that night, that Sunday night, I was scheduled for the first time ever to do comedy in a real comedy club. Like I'd done one talent show on campus freshman year, I'd done another one sophomore year, but that night I was scheduled to do a comedy open mic, Dick Doherty's Beantown Comedy Vault, downtown Boston, and it was a two-person bringer show, which means you, in order to get your five minutes, you have to bring like two people who like buy a full price ticket, all right? And I'm just like, Hey man, whatever you gotta do, I'm exhausted. We'll deal with all this shit tomorrow. I'm just gonna lay down, sleep for a couple hours, wake up, work on the sack, and go do the comedy. And then, you know, I put my head on down, and not even 10 minutes after that, there's a knock on the door. And it's BCPD, and the officer's just like, you gotta come with me, son. And I'm thinking like, what? Like, I mean, I know I was drinking underage, uh, but one, not an arrestable offense, and two, you can't prove it, so what's up? And he's just like, hey man, you gotta come with me. So I'm like, all right. And like my roommate's like not looking me in the eye. So I'm like, all right, whatever, this is weird. We get in the car, we start driving to the campus police station. And that is when I found out that the night before, things had gone a little sideways and I had made several loud and public announcements that I was going to kill myself. Like, yeah, that's what I had done. And as soon as he said that, I was like, oh, this is bad. This is really bad, all right? So backtrack, as I said, I went to Boston College. If you don't know, it's a school that is extremely white, extremely Catholic, and extremely Irish. And I am none of those things, all right? <laughs> and largely not a factor. Like, uh, I have very little negative to say about school. I enjoyed my time there, good education. I worked there for several years after I graduated. But back then, that summer, I was doing campus tours. So all day long, me and a crew of about like 12 other students, we walk backwards, talk to parents and prospective students, we give big Q&A panels talking about the school. And um, I'm 32 now, I'm an introverted person now, like uh, I do this, but in my private life, I have a very small circle of very good friends. I prefer to spend most of my time alone. I enjoy it, it works for me. Uh, back then, I would say that like, I had like crippling introversion. Like it was extremely difficult for me to talk to anybody, like to you know, make friends or have one-on-one -on -one conversations. And like, that was kind of a rude awakening because I'd gone to school thinking it was gonna be this whole like PCU, Revenge of the Nerds, House Party 2 fantasy, where you're like, you know, you just party all the time and make the best friends in your life and like, you know, you fall in love, all that stuff. And it had really just been like two years of eating every meal alone and like walking around on campus at night just wondering, how do people do that, you know? So when the entire crew got invited by friends of the oldest kid in the program to go to an off-campus party, I was just like, hey, let me try it out. I know I'm bad at parties, but let me try this one. I'll try to make some friends, meet some people, maybe it'll be different or I'm gonna go. Now, I knew going in that it was being billed as a thug party, all right? But I didn't really have a conception of what that was. I figure people are gonna be listening to hip hop using slang ironically. Count me in, let's do this, all right? <laughs> so much worse than that, oh my God. If you've never been to a thug party, what it actually is is a bunch of trust fund white kids basically just walking around wearing like wife beaters and bandanas and like drinking 40s out of paper bags. Like I shit you not, like real life like fake jewelry, like bling and everything and like singing along to hip hop, not editing out the N word. All right, so like, yeah, that's what I get into. And I, I'm just like, whoa, it just hits me like what, a lot. Like 
I was offended on two levels because I was like, that, but then also, that's how white you think I am? Like, you were comfortable inviting me here? Like, what? <laughs> you know? And so, it was just like a lot coming at me, like, uh, and like, minstrel show, full on, and like, I can't deal with this at all, at all. So my solution to cope was to post up next to the keg, grab like a 16-ounce solo red cup, fill that with beer, knock it back, rinse, repeat. Just kept on doing that, all right? I probably had like, uh, like five, six beers in like 50 minutes. And like, I'm a pretty heavy drinker these days. Like I can maybe, maybe handle that now. Back then, absolutely not. Like very quickly, I go beyond slurring words. I go beyond acting stupid. I get full on, deep dive, blackout drunk. And the last thing that I remember was seeing this kid, uh, he had a 40 in the paper bag and he had a white bandana on, tied like Tupac in the knot in the front, but he had like a full ride hockey scholarship. And I was just like, no! And then I woke up on the lawn, all right? So, yeah. So the cop is like telling me we're in the car. He's just like, yeah, man, uh, we had a, what, a search party out. We had like night vision goggles. We had a whole crew. We're looking down the reservoir. We thought you might've drowned yourself. And I was just like, all right, crack team, all right? Uh, I was a passed out teenage boy. The first place you look is the bishop's lawn. Like, duh, like, you know, what? Also, where I'd woken up, it was visible. I was like 60 feet off the main road, calm Ave, which means that several people drove to mass. It was just like, huh, dead black kid, all right, whatever. And like, you know, I'm just like, all right, seriously? All right. So, we get into the station and we're just sitting at a conference table and I'm across from this cop and I'm just like, how am I gonna handle this? What am I gonna do? This is really bad. And I asked, you know, can I use the bathroom? And the cop's like, yeah, sure, of course. But I have to stand in the doorway with my back to you and make sure you don't harm yourself. And I'm just like, if you have never had the experience, you are just going to have to believe me when I tell you that peeing four feet away from a man with a gun who is listening intently to make sure that you don't hang yourself with your shoelaces is a very embarrassing experience. Like, I would call that a low point, all right? That was a low point. So that happens, and like, you know, uh, they called my mom the night before, like, you know, during the, the search and everything, and she, like, they call her, tell them, all right, and then come in, and she flies in, and I can't even imagine, probably worst night of her entire life. I'm her only son. They call her, they call my dad, they're divorced, my dad's coming in, my uncle is up from Virginia uh, visiting my dad. It's gonna be a whole family reunion in this police station, all right? And my mom gets in, she's like, oh my God, I'm so happy. You're all right, baby, what's wrong? We're gonna get you all the help you need. I love you so much, what's wrong? And like being a great mom, I find out from a cop that not only had I said that I was gonna kill myself, I had said specifically that I was going to stab myself through the heart, which is a very direct and aggressive way to go about that, right? But as soon as they told me to me, like not even a second passes, I knew immediately, immediately why I must have said that because uh, this is 2004, only about like nine months before, singer-songwriter Elliot Smith had dispatched himself in exactly that same manner. And I was a huge film fan. I actually studied film and polystyle at BC. The summer before I moved to college, I got my first DVD player. Among the first five DVDs that I bought was the Wes Anderson movie, Royal Tenenbaums. And if you haven't seen it, there's a scene where former tennis star, very depressed man Luke Wilson walks into a bathroom uh, it says I'm going to kill myself tomorrow then takes out a razor and very graphically slits his wrist and on the soundtrack to that scene nothing other than Elliot Smith's very haunting song Needle in the Hay and during that year I'd been in the habit of watching that scene on repeat so yeah that's where we were not not my best year like I said like just couldn't connect to people very extraordinarily bottled up and like I would see people like making friends and having heartfelt conversations and like it got, I, I knew I couldn't do it. So it got to the point where I just like mentally just made a flip and I was like decided like that's what weak people do. Like weak people need to talk about their problems and have friends. I don't need any of that. And like I'm strong and like you know and like it was just really bottled up, not good inside, but I could keep a cap on it normally and like, you know, get great grades and smile and give tours and talk about how the food on campus was to high schoolers and be in student government, all that stuff. But that night it just went out the window and yeah, whatever. Um, you know, we're at, they released me to my parents' custody to go back to my dad's house. You know, they're trying to feel me out and everything like that. And I'm on full on 
damage control mode. I am just like, we gotta make this go away. Minimize, minimize, minimize. So I just, I'm telling jokes, I'm smiling, I'm telling my mom like, yeah, I don't even remember any of that. Like, I, I'm sure I just said all that stuff to get attention. I'm sure it was just, you know, a bad idea to get attention. Like, don't even worry about it. And like, I really didn't remember most anything, but in the in, in intervening hours, like I got a couple snatches. So I remember like being laid out on the hood of a car outside the party. And all the people I came with were like trying to figure out what the hell we're gonna do right now because they're underage, they don't wanna go to the cops unless they have to, but they're like, ugh. And they start walking me back and I remember I broke away from the group, ran off between a couple of houses and everybody's just like, Wes, come back! And then I woke up on the lawn. So like I got a little bit more, but not much. And so like after a couple hours, I'm just like being like, ha, ah, really smiley at my dad's house. They're finally like, all right, well, none of us is a mental health professional, whatever. Uh, let's just, you know, he seems stable. Let's take him back to the dorm. Uh, and they did, and I will say that that week I had to go meet one of the deans of students to like, you know, go over the situation. Like obviously it had been reported, it was a whole thing. And the dean was just like, she was like, yeah, um, you can come back in the fall, you're not in trouble. You can even continue to work here this summer, uh, but what you have to do is you have to see a therapist. You have to see a mental health professional. You staying here is contingent on that. And I said that I would, and I never did and nobody ever checked up on it in any way whatsoever, all right, at all. And that is how school shootings happen, yeah, so whatever. Just like, hey, this kid obviously needs help, let's do absolutely nothing to make that happen whatsoever. I didn't even walk out of there with a fucking form to fill out, like, at all, all right? And don't get me wrong, like, I was so happy about that. I can't express to you the degree to which I did not want to see a therapist at all. I understand therapy and the value of it, like, I have friends who have gone, it's changed them. Like they live better lives and are better people. And I've seen that. I understand therapy, but for, I'm a black man from New England. There's no place, all right? There's not in the lexicon, like going to like a, a therapist. So like at all. And like, it was just not something I wanted to do remotely. So I get back to the dorm room and all this craziness has happened. And I'm just like, well, I got to do comedy in like three hours, all right? I'm definitely still doing this show. So as I said, it was a two person bringer show. You had to bring two people. And all week long, I had been asking people from the program, like, hey, will you come to this thing? I gotta do this thing. And everybody was like giving me the brush up, like, hey, I'm really busy, or I can't make it, maybe next week, whatever. And in the time since I've been, you know, performing and producing shows for more than a decade now, I cannot tell you how difficult it is to get people to come out to an event. It's one of the hardest things in the world. You can spend years trying to figure out how to get people to pay money, like leave, like people have nice comfortable apartments, they don't have to spend money, or like, you know, especially on a weeknight, something like that, to get them to come out, buy a ticket, be out, is so hard, all right? But when I checked my messages that afternoon, I had one from Pete, one of the kids closest to me in the program, and like, uh, it was just him, like three o'clock in the morning, just like, uh, uh, hey Wes, this is Pete, everything's cool, everybody just wants you to come back to the dorm, everything's gonna be totally fine, and uh, I'll totally go to that comedy show with you. I'm like, yes, yes! <laughs> Pro tip, pro tip, you want people to come to your shows, you threaten to kill yourself, all right? They will come out. They will come running, all right? So Pete came, uh, and then I had a friend from home come, and uh, I went separately alone, and I went, uh, got there like an hour early, and I'm just sitting on a bench in Boston Common, and I'm just thinking like, well, that was crazy. Work's gonna be interesting tomorrow. But at the same time, everything I just told you was kind of like in the back of my mind, because I'm much more concerned now I'm about to do stand-up in a real comedy club. And I was just like sitting there, and I sat there for like an hour hoping that the building would burn down because I was so nervous to do stand-up. But there's also never any consideration that I wouldn't. Like, we're doing this thing, right? So I go in, and I get up on stage, and I do my thing, and there's no other way to say it. Like, my life is bisected. It's like before that and after that. That's the split of my life. Everything was so important that moment. Like, not the suicide shit, but like the stand-up. It was great. It was amazing because, you know, no standing ovation, nobody with a contract came out, but enough people laughed enough where I was like, I want that all the time. Like, for real. I got like the superpower, right? Like, you know, I really felt that. And I'm not a superhero at all, like at all, remotely. But if I was, that weekend would without doubt be my origin story, like straight up. <laughs> Everything about me is in that, like the pillars of my life. We have racism, mental health issues, substance abuse, and performing live. That's all you need to know about me, like that's the whole thing. So I'm really thankful for it. You guys have been fantastic. Thank you guys so much.
It was a beautiful, sunshiny day in 1996. I was standing on Fifth Avenue with a gaggle of my friends watching the gay pride parade. Well, at one point, I tore my eyes away from some waggling butts on a passing float, and I looked to my right, and then I looked about 12 feet in the air, and there in the sky was the most dazzling smile. A beautiful smile on a beautiful guy. He looked maybe Filipino and maybe a dancer or an athlete because he'd climbed up a telephone pole to watch the parade from a perch. Now, fortunately, I didn't have time to think. I was just so struck by that charming smile in the sky, I couldn't help but smile right back. But then I had time to think. I thought, oh my God, what do I do? He can't really be smiling at me, right? I thought, Kevin, no, it's too awkward to say hello to someone when they're 12 feet in the air, right? Then my friend Tim grabbed me and he said, Kev, let's go. We got to get to that house party we were invited to before the ecstasy kicks in. And before I knew it, I was floating away in the crowd with my friends, looking back at that smile, getting further away until like the smile on the Cheshire cat in Alice in Wonderland, it disappeared. Five years later, I was sitting on a couch looking at my very first therapist. Her name was Agatha. She was a dark and gloomy and and smoky kind of woman. I don't mean smoky like um, she smoked cigarettes or something. I mean like smoky, like I kind of imagined every time I exited the room, she would, just like Count Dracula, transform into a mist. Agatha was so goth that behind her, in her office was a painting from like the 1800s, I guess, of a desolate rural road in the wintertime strewn with dead children. (laughs) And when you looked her up on Google, the only result was that she once had a role in the Nastasia Kinski movie, Cat People, playing Gypsy Witch Number Three. But I digress. That first day of therapy, Agatha said, Kevin, why are you here? I said, well, Agatha, because I'm 31 years old and I've never had a boyfriend. I said, you don't understand, Agatha. I have known I was gay from the beginning of consciousness. I wanted to marry the boy next door when we were still in diapers. But when I was five years old, another kid in the neighborhood named Rick said to me, Hey, Kevin, you know how people use those words gay and fag? What those words really mean is a boy who likes boys the way boys are supposed to like girls. That's why those words also mean disgusting and horrible. So I grew up thinking I was disgusting and horrible if anyone ever found out that i was a boy who liked boys everyone would hate me so i would see stories like you know beauty and the beast or phantom of the opera and i'd always identify with the monster every boy i I developed a crush on i thought he was a beauty and i was a beast so when i finally escaped Ohio (laughs) when I was 18 years old I I went to NYU and I was finally in a town where it was okay to be gay but those old feelings that I'm too monstrous to talk to beautiful guys well they were just completely hardwired in me now and Agatha said but you've been an adult in New York for well over a decade now 
Surely you've had at least one instance of getting to know a guy in a way that might have started to become a relationship. I said, well, there was Brandon. See, one night when I was about 28 years old, I was at a gay bar in the East Village, and I met a guy with pretty brown eyes named Brandon. I was very drunk, and he was very drunk. So, (laughs) we had that in common. Well, we slept together that first night, and in the morning, he said, we should do that again. So, every three or four days, I'd come over, and we'd do that again. I kept trying to plan things like trips to museums or visits to Coney Island, but Brandon seemed like a really introverted guy. So one morning, about a month in, we woke up and we were laying in bed and I said, you know, Brandon, I'd like to get a feeling for where you think this might be going. Like, do you think you're more of a monogamy kind of a guy or more of an open relationship kind of a guy? He looked at me like he'd just bitten into a lemon. He said, we don't have to talk about that. You talk too much. So I went right on being nervous about how to talk to guys. And then after sleeping with Brandon for like another three months, one day we were walking on the Christopher Street piers and I just couldn't help it. I had to ask him that monogamous or not question again. And he said, look, Kevin, I have a boyfriend. You've been my back burner boy this whole time. So, (laughs) in his defense, I, I should be fair. That is technically not monogamous, nor an open relationship. (laughs) So Agatha said, Oh, Kevin, how did you react? And that's the worst part. I reacted like a guy who thinks he's a monster talking to a beauty. I said to Brandon, Oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry if this is awkward for you to be telling me. And Brandon winced. He said, I just told you I've been cheating on you and you're apologizing. And he walked away. I said to Agatha, so at the age of 31, that is the closest I've come to having a relationship. Agatha said, well, Kevin, there is so much for us to unpack from that story, but we're out of time. In the meantime, just relax and trust that when you're ready and when someone who is compatible with you is ready... Something will click. I mean, that sounded almost meaningless. But a few weeks later, something happened that put everything in perspective. I was 12 blocks away the morning that the two planes flew into the World Trade Center towers. I've yet to ever tell the the full story of what I lived through that day. It was a traumatic day. But in the weeks that followed, when I would wake up in the morning, I was surprised every morning by this sense of gratitude I would feel for simply being alive. There was a graffiti artist who was going all around Manhattan in the couple of days after 9-11, and he was spray painting on buildings the message, you're alive. I began to feel that on some level, in some deeper dimension, perhaps, everything is somehow still okay. And a lot of New Yorkers seem to be feeling 
something like that. People seem to be speaking to each other more presently, more honestly, more compassionately. Everyone had seemed to have let go of at least a little bit of the standard pointless worrying. You know, it was like in the midst of that destruction, we remembered the importance of creation. So I was meditating on that one day, about a month later, month after 9-11, when I was walking down Park Avenue and I remember I was listening to big band music from the 40s on my headphones as I was crossing the street. When I glanced up and I saw this beautiful smile passing by me, I didn't really have time to think, so uh, I just smiled right back. We passed each other. Then I looked behind me and saw that he was looking back too, and we were both smiling still. And somehow, in my state of calm, it didn't even occur to me to start fretting. I just turned and walked right up to him. He said, I'm Ariel. We've never met each other, but you know, we have smiled at each other before. It was five years ago on Gay Pride Day. I'd climbed up on a telephone pole. I said, oh, oh my gosh, that was you. He said, it sure was. And this time, I'm going to get your phone number. Well, we exchanged phone numbers. And as I walked away, that's when something I'll never forget happened. For the very first time in my life, I was not worrying. I was not thinking, oh my God, am I going to call him first or is he going to call me first? And how many days is the right amount of days to wait before calling? And am I going to be too scared to talk when we do talk? And what's the right thing to talk about when we talk? Somehow, I wasn't in that headspace anymore. I was just comfortable. I just trusted we were going to feel it out and everything was okay. Well, sure enough, our first date was lovely. Our second date was too. And on our third date, I remember we were standing in the subway station at West 4th Street. And Ariel said to me, Kev, I should let you know, I'm feeling like an open relationship kind of a guy at this point in my life. So I want to know how you feel about that. He said, I would love it if the two of us could, you know, be proactive about checking in on a regular basis and communicating with each other about the evolving boundaries we could create for a relationship. I thought to myself, holy shit. <laughs> I found a man with a gorgeous smile who isn't afraid to talk. I'm learning how to really talk to someone I'm attracted to. And that's why I made that man my husband. Now, <laughs> I have to be honest with you and tell you that he is now my ex-husband, but we are still very dear friends. In fact, the night I'm recording this, <laughs> we're supposed to be having a Zoom meeting with each other in a little bit. But I, I did say to him uh, I, several months ago, I said, Ariel, I don't want to stop telling that story about how we met. And he said, well, why should you? I mean, both of us look back on our relationship with <laughs> a lot of mixed feelings, but lots of good ones. Let other people think that relationships are worthless unless they last forever. But let us be grateful for the relationship we've had. That is what I celebrate with this story. 
When you're smiling, when you're smiling, when you're smiling, when you're smiling, and the whole world smiles with you. And when you're laughing, when you're laughing, oh you're laughing, oh you're laughing, when the sun comes shining through, shining through. When you're crying, when you're crying, you bring on the rain. Stop your sign, stop your sign. Won't you be happy again? When you're smiling, keep on smiling, and the world will smile. This is Risk. This is Louis Prima behind me now. And we just heard from me. How did I sound? <laughs> oh, and by the way, my ex-husband is an actor, a singer, a producer, a arts coordinator. You can find him <laughs> at arielestrada.com. Guys, I'm starting something for fans of Risk that is super exciting, and it's going to open up a lot of new possibilities, I think. I've started an account on a community-building platform called Subtext. And if you want in on this, you just text anything to the number 347-252-9616. Here's how it works. Through subtext, I will be able to send personal texts from me, Kevin Allison, to the phones of Risk fans who opt in to receiving them. These will be little tidbits of news about what's going on behind the scenes at Risk, trivia about what went into the making of the episodes, polls that you can fill out, details I left out of stories or that storytellers left out during the workshopping process, tips for people who are thinking of pitching us stories, random personal thoughts about life in general, links to articles I'm reading or videos I'm watching or podcasts I'm listening to, links to other content from our storytellers. I'll even create exclusive content like video check-ins, maybe even Zoom events just for subtext subscribers. I want to really see if we can build more of a risk community here around texting. And again, to get started, you just text anything to the number 347-252-9616. Now, when you get a text from me and you text me back, does every subscriber see what you say? No, just me. So you're texting me right to my own phone. Will I respond to every single text I get from subscribers? I can't guarantee that, but I will certainly do my damnedest to reply to 95% of them. Everyone who signs up will get the first 14 days for free. And then after that, it's just $5 per month. So you've got nothing to lose. See how much fun it is getting texts from me about the podcast, about storytelling craft, about our community, about my personal life. I love texting. So I think I'm going to get a huge kick out of this. And I think you will too. Again, to get started getting texts from me for a 14 day free trial, just text anything to 347 252 9616. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance, there's scandalous family secrets. 
It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, don't forget that the next Risk live stream show is July 17th at 7 p.m. Pacific time, 10 p.m. Eastern. The one we just did was so phenomenal. I'm so proud and I'm so moved that we've been able to have such extraordinary shows online during this time. So be sure to be there. I promise you it'll be a very moving and entertaining and therapeutic part of your week. And we have another absolutely spectacular cast of storytellers for the one on July 17th. Vara Cooper, Edith Gonzalez, Matthew Dix, and Harold Cox. There's a limited number of tickets available for this show. So go to risk-show.com tour to get your tickets now. Our next story comes to us from one of those live stream shows. You're about to hear just how intimate these live streams can be to know that the storyteller is live in the moment, speaking directly into your home that evening from their home. The storyteller knows there's about 200, sometimes 300 people tuning in and that anything can happen. <laughs> so this is one of those really moving moments when Laura Baring shared this story with us at a live stream. You could tell how moved people were, especially in the Q&A with the storytellers afterward. Here is Laura Baring now with a story we call Fixing Things. So I'm eight years old, and I am so excited because I have a brand new baby sister, which is all I had ever wanted. And I remember the day my mom was coming home from the hospital, I went into the nursery and I was wiping down the bars of her white crib, the washcloth, just trying to fix everything in the room for her before she got home. And in a lot of ways, I think that I've been trying to fix things for her ever since. My sister suffers from bipolar disorder, among other things, and to cope with that, she does drugs. She started with pain meds, the kind that you can get from the emergency room. She's probably been to the ER a hundred times. And now she also sometimes does harder stuff, cocaine, heroin, crystal meth. My sister is lost and sad and she has been since she was a kid, and we tried to help her the very best way we knew how, but I think part of me will always wonder if we did it wrong, if every time we thought we were helping her, we really just 
made it worse all the times we gave her money to help her get on her feet, all the times we saw her destructive behavior but we made excuses for her or we believed that it would get better with time, all the times we pushed her to get help or to get a job or to take a class. Maybe we pushed too hard or maybe we didn't push hard enough. And yet another part of me knows that there was no saving her. She has been homeless off and on for a while now and Bit by bit, her life has become something that I could not imagine enduring. Now, the other thing you should know is almost eight years ago in August, she had a little baby boy. When she was pregnant with him, she was the happiest and, and, and most grounded that I had ever seen her. She was even keeled and, and warm and positive. And I, I flew to Texas to surprise her and I brought maternity clothes and baby supplies and I remember sitting in her little living room and watching her unwrap those gifts and, and we were FaceTiming and laughing with our mom who was working out of state at the time and I just felt close to her in a way that I hadn't in years. It was like my baby sister was back and I thought, well, maybe this is it. You know, maybe now things will change. And I took so many pictures and video from that night, which I'm so glad I have now. Something that I can show my nephew, to show him that she cared and that she was excited. Because whatever it was about that night, it did not last. She rarely, if ever, calls him or sees him anymore. My mom has been raising him since birth, and he's a really cool kid. He is funny, and he's weird, and he's so intuitive, and I love him with my whole heart. And my heart breaks for him when I think about him being older and knowing that his mom is not okay and that she's just out there somewhere. And then a few months ago, my mom called me and she told me that my sister was missing. My sister hadn't used her cell phone, which was her lifeline, in six days. Now, that's six days of no phone calls, no text messages, no internet searches, nothing. And to give you a little bit of context, her dad had been paying her cell phone bill so that they could all stay in contact. And my mom had been buying her food every week or so that she would pick up at the local Walmart. And I said, well, maybe it's broken or, or she lost it. But we all knew that that was a shot in the dark because my sister has no problem asking for what she wants. And if she needed a new phone, she would find a way to call her dad or, or, or our mom and demand that they buy her a new one. But nobody had heard from her. So my mom started looking through the phone logs and just cold calling people that my sister had talked to last. And this included a, a brother and a sister who lived in a small town um, a little ways away. And they said that they had seen my sister, but they didn't know what happened to her. Their story was suspicious. It kept changing. First, they said that they gave her a ride and they dropped her off in Fort Worth. And then they said they didn't know where they dropped her off and the timing of the story changed. The woman my mom was talking to was a young mother of three, and her brother was a recently released felon with the frightening tattoos and, and buzzed cut blonde hair, kind of like a guy from American History X. I know this because I looked him up on Facebook. Another person my mom spoke with was a man named Lance. Now, Lance was pretty well spoken, he was friendly, and he told my mom that he was worried about my sister as well. And Lance took a real liking to my mom, probably because my mom is endlessly empathetic, sometimes at the expense of herself. And after befriending my mom, Lance told her proudly that he was a 20-year member of the Crips. And my mom was now family, and he would fuck up anyone who tried to hurt her. And then my mom had to uh, ask, um, what is a Crip? And then upon realizing it was a gang, uh, asked him to, to please never, ever, ever, never, ever, ever hurt anyone on her behalf. Now, my mom is a retired nurse. She is smart as a whip. She's the only liberal in her small Texas town, and she still drinks her coffee every morning out of a mug that I made for her. And I hated seeing my mom in so much pain, and I hated my sister just like a little bit for causing it. It was different for me because I had moved to Los Angeles. You know, I had some distance. I'd put up walls. 
I didn't have to answer the phone in the middle of the night and hear my sister sobbing and panicked and, and, and high and on a bad trip. I didn't have to, to deal with her manipulative behavior. She's begging for help, help that we had given her over and over and over. I didn't, I didn't have to deal with the vulgar vitriol she'd spit out when she was having a manic episode. I didn't have to call the police because I was scared of her. I didn't have to keep getting sucked back in. I would listen to it after the fact on the phone. I would sit in my living room in LA and I would try to be there for my mom to listen or to give her some perspective. I kept up with my sister on social media, but I never added her as a friend. I could not let her in. But sometimes, when I'm driving around LA, this is weird, but I will see a woman who has blonde hair and is scared looking and alone and dirty, and I will be so sure it's her, and my breath will catch and my heart will start pounding, and I've even looped around the block to make sure, and it's never her. I haven't seen my sister in a really long time, but she's always with me. My mom uh, was devastated. I refused to get sad until we knew exactly what had happened to my sister for sure. My mom wanted to find whoever had hurt her and, and put him in jail and throw away the key, and I wanted my mom to be okay enough to take my nephew to his dance class after school, which meant she really needed to stop crying. The seventh day passed, and we thought she was dead. You know, maybe that that brother and sister had done something with her in another call. They had let it slip that they had her stuff, including her phone, which they had lied about. So we thought maybe that they all got high and my sister OD'd, or maybe it was sex trafficking and she was out there somewhere, but she was in trouble. I mean, we didn't know, but we knew whatever it was, it was not good. Seven days is a long time to just be gone. And my mom kept saying, I think she met with foul play, which was just the most formal, saddest way of admitting that she was probably dead. And so my mom filed a missing persons report, both in Fort Worth, which was the bigger city we lived near, and in the small town that my sister had actually last been seen in, but nobody would take the report because my sister was an adult and she didn't have a house, so she wasn't technically missing. And the reality that we may never know what happened hadn't ever occurred to my mom. But in the back of my mind, I always knew it might end like this. And as the eighth day passed, I felt some of my armor start to slip. And I, um, I felt myself starting to really grieve my baby sister. You know, the little girl that she was before she became this woman that I just didn't recognize. And I realized that I had not had a real conversation with my sister in years. And the hardness that I had built up to protect myself started to chip away. And, and I felt the sadness for her struggle and my grief over how lonely she must have always felt. And I started thinking about the good memories I have with her. Like when she was really little, she had a huge crush on John Travolta from Greece. And um, when we were young, we would eat mushroom pizza together and watch TGIF. Her favorite show was Full House, but she called it Michelle. Or how when I was 12, when she was 12, I took her to her first concert, Toby Keith, because her favorite song was Should Have Been a Cowboy. Or how when I went to college, she wrote me this sweet card, and it said, you will never be alone, and God will always be watching over your path. If she was gone, then I didn't have to be scared for her anymore. I didn't have to be scared for her son, who was so young and needed our help and needed our protection. If she was gone, I, I, I could believe she wasn't suffering and I started to feel a little bit of a relief because for once I could believe that she was okay, that she wouldn't ever call my mom in the middle of the night again crying and panicked and suicidal and on a bad trip, that, that she wouldn't ever have to be cold and dirty and sleeping in a tent with a stranger on the street corner somewhere, that nobody could ever hurt her again. And I let myself miss her. And then on the ninth day, my mom got a message from someone who said that they had heard from her on Facebook. Turns out that the um, brother and sister who, who had been lying, well, the guy was pimping out girls, including my sister. And my sister wanted out, and she was in a house, and she snuck out a back window, and she met up with some friends that she knew, and then she was back with her ex-fiance, and then she was homeless again. She called my mom not long after all of that, and, and she was so irate with us for looking through her phone logs and, and for trying to find her. And 
I was so angry with her. And then that anger just turned into sadness when I thought about what she'd gone through. And then I thought about my nephew and those walls went back up and the sadness got tucked away. And just like that, everything was back to normal. If you can call any of this normal. This all happened uh, last year sometime. She talked to my mom a while ago and she uh, had a new boyfriend and they had a, a job for a while. They got fired, I don't know why. I don't know where she is now. And y'all, you know, the truth is, is I don't really have a great ending for this story um, because I don't feel like it's over. I feel like part of me is just waiting for the other shoe to drop or for the morning when I wake up and something like this has happened again. Like this was just a trial run for what's gonna come. But all I do know is that while I know that I cannot save my sister, I am so sorry for how alone she must feel. And I wish more than anything that she could still be that little girl who ate mushroom pizza with me and I wish that I could fix everything and keep her safe. What's so funny is nobody's laughing at this change of heart you're having What's so funny is I'm filled up with thunder I can't seem to get out from under all these stones Keep tied to my chest And I can't change your mind And I can't change your mind That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Bob Schneider and Patty Griffin behind me now. And we just heard from Laura Baring. I remember how moved everyone was that night. That was another of those unforgettable moments that come out of our live stream shows. The next one is July 17th at 7 p.m. Pacific Time, 10 p.m. Eastern. You can get your tickets at risk-show.com tour. Tickets are limited, so make a date. Go get them now. Don't forget that if you love what we do and you do, don't you? I mean, I am so <laughs> I'm so impressed with the episodes that we've been able to put out during this time. This such a challenging time and our business as you know is in a very 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 tight spot now and kind of an existential place and yet we keep putting out really really great episodes. So if you love what we do, you can become a member of our Patreon at patreon.com slash risk. And there is so much bonus content there. Or you could just send us a one-time donation to paypal.me slash risk show. How else can you contribute? Well, you could pitch us a story to share or encourage a friend who might have a story to share. Lots of helpful information about that at wristshow.com slash submissions. You could take a class with us at thestorystudio.org. We heard from one of our faculty members in this episode, Wes Hazard. There are one-hour masterclasses. There are two-day workshops on the weekends. There are multi-week workshops. So many available options for different kinds of storytelling or different aspects of storytelling. If you go to thestorystudio.org, one of the most important things we offer there are corporate workshops. We've worked with clients like Google and Pfizer and American Express and Citibank. Workshops for entire staffs of businesses or just workshops for career-minded individuals. It's all at thestorystudio.org. Come join our discussion group on Facebook. It's uh, the Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group and our subreddit is Risk Podcast. I do one-on-one -on -one consultations with people 
through kevinallison.com. I also make little cameo videos for people, these little personalized videos that you can give to a friend as a gift or just get one for yourself of me. I'll take whatever direction you want of whatever you want me to say or do. <laughs> That's at cameo.com or cameo.com <laughs> slash the Kevin Allison. And look us up everywhere else at Risk Show or at the Kevin Allison. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. There's a wealth out of my front lawn. He's looking pissed off. He's wet from all the rain. I think I'll go say hi. Offer him a beer Kevin, why are you here?